Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. Today I'm representing a very large consortium called COVIC for short, the Coronavirus Immunotherapeutic Consortium, which was launched by the Gates Foundation and expanded by the GHR Foundation and the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. What this is is a global collaboration to understand the landscape of emerging antibody therapies that we could use to treat or prevent disease and to come up with a cocktail that we could use in low and middle income countries where delivery and costs are major issues. Now the idea behind galvanizing a collaboration of competing laboratories and companies across continents came from earlier work we had done on Ebola virus. My lab are structural biologists. We do x-ray crystallography, cryo-EM, cryo-electron tomography to understand the molecular interfaces where the immune system sees pathogen, how pathogen tries to evade that immune system, and what the right therapeutic should be and how we can better craft the viral molecules to be better vaccines. And so we had done a whole body of work over years of Ebola viruses and, and viruses like it that also cause hemorrhagic fever in Africa. And some of those structures are here. So on the molecular surface, that's the structure of the surface protein of the virus that allows it to attach to your human cells and drive it in. And then the ribbon model are human antibodies from different survivors. So we were looking at the molecular structures that told us how the immune system had responded in these survivors. And then we'd done all of this work because we had the idea that maybe if we could understood, understand at the molecular level, what a successful immune response looked like, we could pick the right molecules for therapeutics and design better vaccines. So we had antibodies that could potently neutralize the virus. We knew where they targeted. We could understand which ones bound better and bound worse. And we thought that by tracking that ability to inactivate virus in vitro and doing this structural biology and biochemistry, we could predict what would work in vivo. But there's a big but there. This was the how our field was essentially doing research. And a lot of us still do. So one or just a couple of labs working together would make a panel of antibodies. And they would try to winnow them down to ones they wanted to move forward in their analysis. And the first experiment they would usually do to select their favorite candidates is neutralization in vitro. Now, virologists use two different verbs. There's neutralization, and that's the ability of an antibody to block infection in cell culture. That's usually something mechanical. If the binding of the antibody physically prevents binding to receptor, or the binding of the antibody prevents a necessary cleavage event on the virus, or the binding of the antibody prevents the conformational changes that are necessary for the virus to mediate fusion into the human membrane, that antibody will mechanically inactivate that virus entry machine. We call that neutralization. There's another term, protection. Protection is whether that antibody mitigates disease or confers survival in a living thing in an animal model. And neutralization and protection can be different. What our field had always done was raise a pile of antibodies, winnow them down through the funnel of which ones neutralize in cell culture because it's cheap and it's easy and it's high throughput, and that with the expectation that if they neutralize, they would also protect. The ones that neutralize in vitro would go into a small animal model like a mouse. The ones that would protect the mice would go into a larger animal like a guinea pig. If they protected the guinea pigs, they'd go into non-human primates. 
And the ones that protected the non-human primates would advance toward humans. And typically for emerging infectious disease, the first use was compassionate use for you know, emergency situation. And we had always done this system of funnels by which some things fall through and other things don't because we had to, right? You can't start with every candidate in primates. You must select in some way. We've also done it because it worked. Hits come out the bottom. But, and the literature is full of characterizing the hits that come out the bottom. We didn't look too much at the things that don't pass through the funnels because they would just be shelled or left on the cutting room floor. But it occurred to us that each one of these funnels does prevent some things from going through. And what all of these funnels have in common is something mechanical. If the ability of that antibody to block infection has something to do with the biochemistry and biophysics of binding, whether it sterically interferes with receptor binding or physically blocks cleavage or blocks conformational change, that's something that's really easy to recapitulate between cell culture and rodents and primates. If the activity of that antibody was something more complex and the ability of the base of that Y-shaped IgG structure, that FC, the part that interacts with the immune system, if the ability of the antibody to confer protection in a living thing required the ability of that antibody to recruit different complementary immune cells to come in and clear the infection or sound the alarm and upregulate other things, that's something we weren't recapitulating in all of these different funnel systems. FC receptors are different between humans and non-human primates. They're different between primates and rodents, and they probably weren't even there in the original in vitro assays. So our typical research pipeline had totally focused on this mechanical neutralization step without considering the fullness of the greater protection that we could bring in other assays. And the result of that research pipeline and that research kind of habit or practice was this. In 2013, which was a year before the large Ebola virus outbreak in Africa, we, this was the state of our field. We had a molecule called KC52, a human antibody that neutralized beautifully in cell culture and it protected the rodents, but it did not protect the non-human primates. They all died. We had these three antibodies put together in a cocktail that would protect non-human primates, but they didn't neutralize or didn't neutralize worth a darn in cell culture. And so what did that mean? And of course, I'm showing you a crystal structure of one complex on the left and some uh, negative stadium come out of the crystal structure on the right, where are these bound? Was this pair of results telling us that neutralization wasn't the right forecaster of in vivo protection? Or was this set of results telling us that we needed a cocktail instead of a single molecule? Or was this a set of results telling us something else? It was noticed by the army lab, USAMRID, that came up with this cocktail that it mattered how they produced the antibodies. If they produced them in Chinese hamster ovary cells, half the primates would survive. If they produced them in plant cells, Nicotiniana, all the primates would survive. And the difference was whether or not there was a fucose on the glycan in the FC, which influenced the binding of FC receptors. So maybe there's something important here about the ability of the antibodies to recruit immune protection through those kinds of pathways. Clearly what this meant was that the state of the entire research field at this point was a black box. We were missing information. Either we weren't doing the right assays, we weren't considering the right things, or because we were small and underfunded because we're global health and emerging infectious disease, we had somehow come up with the exceptions and not the rules. Maybe we hadn't looked at enough molecules. 
And so we as a body of scientists thought that we needed to do a better job. We needed to figure out what it was that would lead to in vivo protection because we don't need to protect ELISA plates against Ebola virus, we need to protect people. And we needed a statistically significant pool of antibodies to do so because the possibility was we hadn't looked at enough and we'd come up with the acceptance of the goal. And so that was clear that that was what needed to be done. The question was, how are you going to do it? We needed better tools. Maybe we weren't doing the right kinds of experiments. We clearly needed more samples. And the challenge was that every laboratory was working in a silo by themselves. And by this point, the pandemic had begun with cases doubling every two weeks, beginning with that infected two-year-old in Guinea. And so we thought as a body of scientists, we need a structure here. We need a research framework that will enable the collaboration that we know that we need and the sample and the data sharing we know that we need to answer these questions where we as a body of scientists were stuck, but we have to do it within a research environment that's fundamentally built on competition. And the competition was why everyone was siloed and working within their own labs. Now there's a lot of benefits to a research structure built on competition. Competition drives innovation. Competition drives us to get our results faster. Competition drives you to do a better job to make sure that your paper stands the test of time. But it also means that even if you wanted to share your samples, um, you couldn't. You'd be worried about, you know, you need to get your first author papers for your people to progress in their careers. Even if you wanted to share your samples, sometimes your university wouldn't have let you because of intellectual property or it just took too long to get the MTA done. We knew that we needed a way in which we could put all of our samples together to figure out what experiments we were doing. We knew that we needed to bring in other kinds of experiments because either neutralization wasn't it or we were measuring neutralization the wrong way. But the other trouble is that people had built their research careers on their business models of doing certain kinds of experiments. And they were kind of reluctant to say that what I've been doing all along wasn't the right thing because that threatens their funding structure. So there are kind of systemic problems that were preventing progress in the field. So how are we going to fix those? We know that that's something that we need to do, but how? How do you enable collaboration within a structure that's fundamentally built on competition? We put a lot of thought into this. And um, we came up with a program by which everybody would contribute their antibodies into one big study to compare things side by side. Because part of the issue was that if you run the same neutralization assay in 10 different labs, you might get 10 different results. Because in every lab, each viral passage has a different passage number, or a different incubation time, or a different set of hands. And maybe the proteins are more or less glycosylated in one, or there's a difference in incubation time that makes a difference, or they're looking at a multi-time point versus one time point. We need to look at things in some sort of standardized way in order to be able to compare things apples to apples. We need to be able to look at more different kinds of assays or experiments or antibody features than the field had looked at before. And we need to compare the assays at the same time as comparing the antibodies in a broader, larger study that involves more people and more things all at the same time. So how are we going to do that? Because people are fundamentally worried about whether or not they're going to be able to publish their paper on the molecules they discovered in their lab. And if they're unpublished, they might not be willing to ship them around the world to their competitors. So we designed a study whereby all of the antibody samples were blinded. Antibodies would come from multiple different competing labs. And when they arrived, they'd all be given a code name. 
And so nobody knew who, whose antibodies were whose. We were just looking at antibody features in general and talking about sample 36 or sample 89. And the person who owned that could go on publishing their paper on its real name and characterizing it in the way that they were needed to to advance the goals of their lab. But we also had access to the larger data set for comparisons of the deeper understanding. That blinding also protected the intellectual property. We had ironclad agreements by which if we together all decided that some molecule was the best one in the field, well, that was just good for its owner. And the owner, any improvements we would made would go back to the owner and that let people be able to contribute their samples to the study. The other challenge with running a really large collaborative effort is speed. The time it takes to bring people together and figure out a plan forward can be too slow, especially in the course of, of an epidemic. And so we decided to counteract the problem of speed by running two parallel tracks. A smaller subset with a couple ideas we thought were our best to mix and match a certain cocktail and just run that forward so that there's something at the same time as a larger, more comprehensive study to evaluate all of the samples and all of the different kinds of experiments proceeding in parallel. So we ran parallel tracks. And the whole thing, the other issue was how are you going to fund a really large study because it's going to distract people from what they were otherwise trying to do. So we wrote a large center of excellence in translational research grant just funded by NIH. And it was enough money to support the work that needed to be done on the larger thing. And that program launched a global collaboration that ultimately united 44 competitors across five continents. Some were academic, some were industry, some were government, and put them into a single comprehensive effort to answer the questions of, okay, what antibodies do lead to protection? How are we going to find them? What are the right experiments to do to select and analyze them so we can you know, reshape how we do research to come up with better answers faster in the future? Over three years, we looked at 200 different monoclonal antibodies. Each were the ones contributed by different labs that had raised them in different ways and selected them by different criteria. And so on the y-axis, these are the antibodies that we collected. They all came in and got blinded. This is everything we measured about them. Anybody in the field that had something they thought they was a, a key feature of an antibody that could correlate with protection, we said, okay, you do that. You do that on the same set of antibodies. So everybody sent the antibodies in, they're all blinded, they're all given code names. We packed identical box sets of the field's antibodies and sent the same box out to every lab doing an experiment to analyze antibodies. So one looked at the glycans on the FC, one looked at how they bound to different types of Ebola virus, species of Ebola virus. We had neutralization measured in different ways and different variables to say, well, are we looking at neutralization the right way? We had different in vivo models. Whatever somebody was doing, but they were an expert in that kind of analysis and antibody. They would do it on the same set of molecules. And then we would meet and put the data back together and analyze it. And so this is some analysis done by Christian Anderson, where we could look, because we had so many variables about each antibody, we could look first and see which things correlated together. If they were an antibody of type you know, human IgG1, did they have certain sugars? Could they recruit certain functions? If they hit a certain epitope, were they more likely to be cross-reactive? If they hit a certain epitope, were they more likely to be protective? And then we could do a regression model to figure out of all the different things you could measure high throughput cheaply and in plastic rapidly, which are the things that actually correlate with protection in the animal model? We've got with 17 that together can predict whether or not that antibody is going to work in the, in the initial mouse model with 96% accuracy. So a big bar is an important predictor of protection. A little bar, not so important. So maybe you don't need to do the ones on the bottom. 
A blue bar is a good feature. That's a good thing for the antibody to do, lose protection. Red is a bad thing. If the antibody does that, it's less likely to lead protection. What we found is that neutralization, the ability of the antibody to block infection in cell culture, is indeed among the more predictive things, but it depends on how you measure it. Some assays better reflected the structure of the authentic Ebola virus particle um, in length and shape and how the readout was. It also mattered whether or not a secreted version of the viral glycoprotein was present or absent. There is a new feature we picked up, which is the fraction left unneutralized, the amount of virus left behind. If that epitope where the antibody hit was variable in some way, plus or minus a glycan, or up and down of a peptide conformation, so the antibody sometimes couldn't bind, that viral particle would escape. And for a virus where a single particle can be a lethal dose, leaving anything behind is a bad function. What we used to focus on, which is the biosafety level two model neutralization, and where it bound and how well, turned out to be less predictive of in vivo success. So what the field I used to focus on were not the most predictive things. So it helped revive what research, revise what research we ought to be doing. And then everything in cyan were features about the FC, ways that it might recruit different immune functions that together led to a good chunk of the predictive capacity of the antibody. And those were things that no one had ever focused on or selected on before. They were always present, they would be happening, but they wouldn't be measured until the final readout of survival or disease in the animal model without sussing apart what was the actual contributor. So we learned new features that we ought to be thinking about. And so at the end of the day, you know, in, in writing this grant and re reading very carefully the critiques and using those critiques to try to make it better, we can ask whether it really succeeded. And so some of the reviewers said, well, the trouble with a large study is you might be susceptible to groupthink. How are you going to make sure that individual voices get heard? And the answer was we did it in a data-driven way. If someone had an assay they wanted to do, great, do it. Let the data read out and decide whether or not that forecasts or predicts with success. Um, people might argue about how long a large study might take. But if you think about it, normally what's done in a research field is a lab does a study, writes the paper, publishes the paper, that can take a while. You read the paper, you try to replicate the results in your lab, you write your paper. By the time you get to the third paper and the shaping of the ideas in the field, some time has gone by. In this study, we had different kinds of experiments run all at the same time. And all of the investigators doing these experiments were analyzing this body of data together. And it was data gathered on the samples from their labs. And so we're able to just, in a, in a, in a just a purely data-driven way, to say, all right, what shook out at the end of the day as a more important predictor. The other critique in reading our grants was that it would be really difficult for scientists to participate because in a 100-person study, 98 of them are not going to be first or last author. And so how do you get people to participate in something that might come up with good data at the end when they know they need first author papers, or last author papers to advance their careers? And the answer was, there was 100 author paper where we synthesized everything together, but because there was so much information in such a large study, there wound up being 78 papers. And so everybody that participated in it could take a piece and analyze it and do something else, or use that data to analyze the things they had in their own lab. 
And what I'm particularly proud of is that 10 people got their PhDs from data they generated and um, collaborative analysis they were able to do because of the framework of the study. And six new therapies were advanced forward where there was absolutely nothing to treat Ebola virus before. So when this novel coronavirus emerged, we were asked by the Gates Foundation to recreate the study to compare the different antibody therapeutics moving forward against SARS-CoV-2. And at the time we launched the study, we did not know if vaccines would be available or how well they would work. We certainly knew there would be people that would be exposed that hadn't yet been vaccinated or couldn't be vaccinated for one reason or the other. We didn't know how long vaccines would last. And so it was worthy to evaluate antibodies as an additional backup or as a therapy. And so the goal was to once again unite lots of different labs around the world. These are our first um, partners in the blue dots. I need to update this and about double it. And our goal was to compare all the antibody candidate products moving forward around the world side by side, again, in a blinded fashion, figure out what antibodies in general did against coronavirus, which features correlated with protection, and then can we come up with an antibody cocktail that's inexpensive, inexpensive enough that we can actually use it in low and middle income countries where we thought achieving vaccination coverage would be very slow. And in many parts of the world, people cannot social distance because they would starve to death. So there need to be treatments that are affordable and available. It was hard to get going because unlike for Ebola virus, where no one's ever going to make any money making a treatment for Ebola virus, because everything has to be donated, there was a developed world market for these products. And so we had to spend a couple of months on the phone, um, talking and talking and talking and, and reaching understanding with the different companies that all had a, a profit incentive and, and a risk they would entail in their product by giving it to a bunch of academics to go and evaluate. But ultimately, we now have 400 different antibody therapeutics against SARS-CoV-2 that we're comparing side by side. And the interesting thing about this study, and the reason why it's different from the others you see in the literature, is that the molecules in the study come from so many different labs, different continents, different approaches. Some of them were discovered from people that survived SARS-CoV-2. Some were from people that survived SARS-CoV-1 20 years ago. Some were purely designed in silico. Some are unusual molecular formats, multivalent things or nanobodies. So we're comparing discovery methods and things chosen by different strategies and chosen by different labs at the same time as on the blinded set of 400 molecules looking at what they do, where do they bind, how well do they bind, how do they compete with each other, who neutralizes, how do we measure neutralization, how do they recruit immune function, which ones can be escaped by mutations and variants, how well do they work in vivo and more. Now, of the contributors to the study, this is different. In the Ebola study, they were mostly academic, a couple of small companies that really worked on global health products, um, basically on government grants that are quite nearly academic. This one, two-thirds of the people contributing molecules to be analyzed were for-profit companies. And the interesting thing was a lot of these, these companies participating were very small. So 8% of our contributors are the major multinational corporations, the ones you read about in the news, the Lilies and the AstraZeneca's. But, you know, a good half are small and startup companies with fewer than 50 employees. And some of these have come up with novel methods and novel molecules. And you can see the tremendous advantage to them in a study like this, because their molecule is on a completely level playing field evaluated side by side with the molecules from the major corporations. And so it's an opportunity for their molecule to be looked at by NIH and Gates Foundation 
on a level playing field. And then they get access to data and experiments that they wouldn't be able to afford. They have a chance of getting a clinical trial. That's something they could pay for themselves. And all the data the consortium generates, they get back that they can use for their own investigational new drug filing. But this is what the study looks like to me. I'm blinded. I don't know what molecule is what. Uh, they're just codenamed COVID-1 to COVID-400. The candidate antibodies come in, they're blinded, they're given code names, they're aliquoted and distributed again to different experts in the field, all analyzing the same set of 400 on different experiments. That data is brought back in and it's cataloged in a publicly available data database where you can just go and download whatever you want into your own Excel spreadsheet and use it for whatever kind of purpose or analysis you want. The intellectual property of everybody's product is protected and they get that data back. And NIH really liked this study because when they, they only have so many clinical trial beds and clinical trial dollars, they needed an independent way of evaluating these different molecules side by side in the same kinds of assays. Because you know, every company might say, well, ours is the best that we know because we did experiment A, and ours is the best we know because we did experiment B. It can be a little bit apples and oranges. So NIH knows which molecules are what, and they're using that data again to evaluate things for their investment. Everything goes into the database, which was built in a, with analysis tools by Professor Bjorn Peters at La Jolla Institute for Immunology. And a lot of different investigators are building this data based on their different expertise. So if you look inside our database, you see things like this. So this is sample number two. We can see where it ranks in the neutralization rankings. Uh, so that's the top row of little blue lollipops. Number two is highlighted as a yellow dot. We can see it falls in epitope group two. We can see something about FC functions. We know where it binds. Uh, here's number 96. Number 96 is the darling of the study. It gives us absolutely the best in vivo protection that we've seen. It falls into epitope group five. It's one of the more potent neutralizers. We see where it binds. It has some interesting biochemistry. So to understand the landscape of these molecules, the first thing we did was competition analysis to figure out where do these things bind on the coronavirus spike? Which ones could we put together into cocktail? How do we categorize all these things in space? Those against the business end of spike, the receptor binding domain, the RBD, fall into seven major groups. And we can make a dendrogram by which we separate them by degree of competition into here are the seven major groups and their subgroups within them. And so, for example, groups one, two, and three are the precise place where receptor binds, receptor binding motif, RBM. Six and seven bind to the interface. So here's spike. It has receptor binding domains that begin down. They lift up in response to receptor or antibodies that bind up. This is the receptor binding motif where groups one, two, and three bind. Here's the interface. This is where group six and seven bind. Here's the outer face. This is groups four and five where they bind. And there's different subgroups within them. And the cool thing is that based on the differences in footprint that we see by differences in competition, it reflects the biological behavior of these things and how they recognize what kind of protection they offer and how well they neutralize. And so the right analogy is sort of like, you know, that New York City has different boroughs and in those boroughs are different neighborhoods and within those different neighborhoods are different streets. And you know that on Cranberry Street versus 125th Street, you might find different kinds of shops or different characteristic kinds of restaurants. And so we see the same kind of behavior in the different antibodies against different footprints. So we're also doing structure of example antibodies from each of these different groups. And if you look at a whole bunch of different ones that fall under footprint RBD3, for example, the yellow ones, they all do hit the same footprint and they tend to approach it from the same angle. 
So we have a sense of where they hit, how they get there. We're looking at structure of the whole IgG to see how um, the two FABs in an, in an antibody might bind bivalently or might bridge different spikes. Do they bind three IgGs per molecule or just one? And also the FAB for resolution. Now, the important part of the structure gives us the footprint. So we could look at each one of these groups and see the extent to which the footprint of that antibody in color overlaps or shifted away from the footprint of the ACE2 receptor. So the footprint of the ACE2 receptor is the black dotted line. The red group overlaps nearly precisely. Three starts to be shifted over to one side and these guys are moved outside of that footprint. And so they are less susceptible to those kinds of mutations that improve receptor binding. So if we build a competition grid across all the molecules in the study, and we, we do this in order not just to categorize behavior, but also to find therapeutic combinations. And a lot of these companies call us for matchmaking. They say, I have a great single antibody, but it needs a pair and a cocktail to mitigate escape, mutagenic escape, help me find a partner. We can go through and find complementary ones that have synergistic neutralization. But if we look at that competition grid, and we narrow it, just show you 50 example ones here just to get some clarity on what we're looking at. We can do things like say, right, the group in 2A are incredibly potent. Those can be paired with groups four, five, and seven. So how do you make good pairings from there? By understanding the footprints, we can also understand which ones are escaped by different point mutations that emerge in the world alone or in context of the variance of concern. And that became really important when one variant after another began to emerge. And so we launched the study initially to compare molecules and compare assays. And we added a third dimension of who can survive all of this variant stuff that's going on, which molecules are going to be durable that we want to make our investment in, they're going to keep working. So here I'm showing you about 45 example antibodies from the study that we chose to be from a variety of different contributors, different labs that had picked them in all different ways and to belong to different source genes, different antibody germlines. So they were different sequences that would hit different places. We've evaluated each of them by their ability to neutralize pseudoviruses bearing either one mutation at a time or the constellation variants of concern. And we did both with the idea that a variant might add or subtract a mutation over time, single mutations emerge, and there, there's going to be some variant, again, that we haven't predicted yet. So we're looking at single point mutations and assembled variants. And then I'm going to look at all this data for you visually by showing you the fold change in neutralization. If there's a green spot, that antibody neutralized that mutant better. A brown spot, that antibody lost its ability to neutralize. Gray, nothing happened in intermediate colors. So increase in neutralization, loss in neutralization. So for example, this one uh, is a good control for us. This is not a natural antibody, but instead a company put together two copies of the receptor on an FC and said we could use it as a control. So point mutations that enhance binding of receptor also enhance binding of this molecule. Now it's still not as potent as the natural human antibodies, but it's a good control to see what's going on. So what we see are that groups 2A and 2B, these are the major therapeutic products that got the press these have some of the most potent neutralization against the original Wuhan or Washington 1 strains. But unfortunately, their neutralization is largely lost with the beta and the gamma variants. And we can narrow that down to which single point mutation caused that. Now, there are exceptions. For example, look at COVID-94. That guy does better. Look at COVID-150. He's in the same footprint as the other two A's for which there's kind of a total knockout. 
but he's still working. So there's some subtle variation there. And these give us molecules we'd want to focus on. Great sources for durable therapeutics are groups five, six, and seven. They do just fine, no matter what the variant is, because they recognize sites that are less subject to mutational pressure. The VIR molecule, the last one left standing, Omicron, is one of these, and there are a lot more like it. So our neutralization results for Omicron are coming out now, and there are a number of different molecules that maintain neutralization of Omicron, and these, I think, could be good products to use going forward to treat an increase in infections. That's Delta, which has a different profile from Beta and Gamma. Okay, so these guys give us really robust and reproducible and reliable neutralization. These are good sources of therapeutic products. So let's talk about how that Y-shaped antibody recognizes that spike. Traditionally, the structural biology that we all grew up with just looked at the business end of that IgG, the FAB fragment, because we needed to get resolution to see anything. And the whole IgG is too flexible. Also, it used to be that we relied on X-ray crystallography to get any acceptable resolution at all. And the whole IgG is very rarely, if ever, going to crystallize. I did crystallize one. That was my PhD thesis, but that's pretty rare, and that was pretty horrible. So we decided to look also at how the IgG is recognized, because we now have cryo-EM, which lets us look at a variety of different molecular structures and populations and to appreciate the flexibility that's there, and you don't need the molecule to crystallize to get there. Now, the first thing to know is that the spike on the surface of the virus is drawn upright, but it doesn't always remain upright. It can move 40 degrees one way or the other. So they sway and they tilt. Each footprint or community of antibody has a characteristic behavior of binding. Those in RBD1 tend to recognize their spike three IgGs at a time. Each IgG binds one FAB to spike and the other one's out here. Whereas group two, and these are among the more potent neutralizers, and these are a lot of the candidate therapeutic products out there that you know, people are getting. These tend to bind one IgG for spike bivalently. So both FABs bind like goalposts with the FC up above. And there's a lot of avidity here. Well, the binding of one accelerates the binding of the other. Group five is kind of interesting. Group five tend to cross-link spikes together. And we see two different things on our EM grids. We either see spikes facing each other with IgGs binding to each. This is something that wouldn't happen in vivo unless two viruses approach each other or a virus in an infected cell. It's something that happens with soluble recombinant protein on a grid. But what would happen are the other thing we see on the grids with two spikes that tilt toward each other and are cross-linked by two of these IgGs at a time. So it seems to be a characteristic of group five that leads to some of its efficacy. Only the ones that cross-link neutralize, and one of those is the best protection in the study. So by mapping the footprint, we can characterize the biological behavior in terms of susceptibility to different mutations and variants, the degree to which it seems to use avidity to bind that spike, and the stoichiometry spike binding. Five are the ones that I think have been emerging as the most interesting when we look at the biochemistry. So if we look at our relatedness map by competition, you can see that five is divided into three flavors, 5A, 5B, and 5C, depending on how they behave. The 5As and 5Bs are the ones that cross-link spikes together. And if they cross-link, they neutralize. The 5Cs do not cross-link spikes and do not neutralize. 
So there's something there about how that IgG recognizes spike that influences its biological activity. And considering what to choose and which spots on spike tend to lead to neutralization and protection, we can analyze the data across the field this way. So this plot is made by Dr. Mita Jarapu, who is a postdoc in Beer and Peter's lab. And so she separated all of the antibodies in the study by their footprint, different colors, one to seven, and their different subsets. So seven's broken up into seven A, seven B, seven C, and so on. Here's the 5A, 5B, and 5C. The A and B are the ones that neutralize. C is a slight difference in footprint and it doesn't neutralize. It's all similar also for 7A and 7B and 7C. There are subtle differences in mode of recognition that determine function. Typically, our most reliable potency for in vitro neutralization comes from the twos. Also, some of the ones down here, the 5Bs, the 7As, one of 5A, some of the 4s. Whereas breadth, the ones that survive mutation and emergence of variants, tend to agree in groups 5, 6, and 7. So what we're looking for is that sweet spot where we can achieve both potency and breadth, and importantly, in vivo activity. So a tremendous amount of work in in vivo modeling of, of protection achieved by these 400 different antibodies is being done at Texas Biomedical Research Institute by Jordi Torellis and Luis Martinez. And so I'm going to put together the data of where the antibody binds, by how well it neutralizes, by whether or not it protects in this way. So 1 through 7, entromal domain, RBD, S1 trimer, these are all epitope groups. IC50, that's neutralization potency, best at the bottom, worst at the top. Epitope group, neutralization, best, worst. In vivo efficacy, I'm showing you by color. So the worst ones where the mice do not survive are brown. The best ones where the mice do survive are in blue, I mean, you know, zero to 100%. So groups four and five offer a lot of protection. There's a lot of blue dots there. Also, here's a winner from group one. Here's a couple winners here that recognize the N-terminal domain or a different epitope on the receptor binding domain that we haven't figured out yet. And what we can see by looking at the aggregate data across the different molecules of candidates of the field are that so far, and in general, an antibody has to neutralize in vitro in order to be protective. The non-neutralizing antibodies are very rarely, if ever, protective. But neutralizing alone in in vitro culture is no guarantee of in vivo success. For example, look at these guys. They're some of the most potent ones science has in vitro. They don't do anything in the mouse model. So the capacity of blocking infection in cell culture is good and helpful and needed, but there's something else as well. So in the next year, what we're gonna do is do the complete variant analysis on the entire COVID panel, and that's being done in an industrial capacity by Nexlis. We're focusing on the novel S2 reactive, um, base of spike reactive antibodies, and the ones that are more variant resistant, that recognize epitopes that don't emerge, with the idea that there's, we're gonna have one variant after another. I don't think we're ever getting rid of SARS-CoV-2 entirely, and a novel coronavirus might emerge. And we're gonna be evaluating the predictive capacity of each of the different flavors and types of in vitro assays based on the in vivo models. The database, which Bjorn is building, is probably the most lasting effect of this, where in a publicly accessible, immediately available format, all the different data and how 400 different 
therapeutic candidates made by different people and evaluated in different ways can be downloaded and understood. And that's key for understanding how we can make better, longer lasting vaccines. What kind of antigen elicits the type of antibody that we want to have? And this is just one last two minute topic. The issue with vaccines is this, the surface protein on the spike, uh, the surface protein, which is spike on the virus is not a stable molecule. Its job in life is to spring into a different, more stable conformation to roll down that energetic hill to drive the virus into the human cell. The spike itself is heterogeneous in its glycosylation, in its conformation, it is not stable. When you try to express it, you don't always get the right structure. Antibodies that neutralize that spike, this is true for multiple different viruses, HIV, Ebola, Lassa, everything, typically are the ones that recognize that unstable pre-fusion structure before it springs into its much more stable structure. They often, some of these more potent antibodies, bridge different monomers together, so it's gotta be in the right shape or they need to recognize the right um, structure determined by the right glycans. And so if your vaccine particle doesn't have the right glycans, it elicits antibodies that aren't directed against the native thing. And the layperson example I always wanna use is like this. It's like a jack in the box where the clown really wants to spring out and once that clown springs out, you're showing the wrong shape to the immune system and you can't get it back in. So we thought about this for a year and really worked on how you make a better quality spike that more accurately presents the right native structure of the immune system, last long enough to do a good job at that. And we started because we needed a much better structural biology tool for spikes falling apart. You can't study structures. What we did by tinkering with this molecule over a year is we removed one of the initial prolines in that S2P construct. So the, va the vaccine that we all got in our arms is S2P. They tried to stabilize the spike by adding two prolines in that would kink the structure. And that was completely necessary because a wild spike type spike is too unstable. But one of those, it turns out, removes a needed salt bridge for stability. So we removed that. We added an internal disulfide in the core that keeps the thing anchored better and we added a flexible linker to prevent separation of the molecules. We call that V-flip. V for now, five prolines, FL for flexibly linked, IP for interpronomer disulfide bond. And here's our cryo-EM structure of that engineered spike. We restored the wild-type salt bridge needed for stability. We added a disulfide in the inner core. The nice thing about this spike, and it is um, just a beautiful, reliable tool for biochemistry and structural biology. It retains the pre-fusion trimeric structure, even if you leave the recombinant protein in a lab drawer for a month at room temperature. It gives us absolutely beautiful yield and stability uh, from a mammalian culture. And we analyzed the glycans, working with Juice Schneider in Netherlands, that are all attached to the spike. And the glycans that incorporates, because it's properly structured, better reflect those in the native virus. And so we, we have a much better version of spike that stays in the right structure and expresses to higher yield. Is it a better immunogen? What happens if we immunize with it? Well, the first question we asked is, does it elicit more total antibody? You know, whether or not it neutralizes, just whatever amount of antibody is there. The answer is about the same. There's the S2P, that's the vaccines we all got. There's Hexapro, which is six prolines, that's the next generation. And there's a V-flip, the one we made. They all elicit about the same total amount of antibody. But if you ask, does it elicit the higher quality neutralizing antibody? Here's the mouse zero one month after immunization. VFLIP has a higher level of neutralizing antibody than the other two. 
But the real question is not seen being response after one month, but what's seen being response after a long period of time and this conversation about whether we've been boosted or not. So to find out how long it would last, we sat on our hands for six months and we waited and we looked at the sera of the mice now six months after immunization. How will this neutralize? And the answer is it's starting to pull ahead. You get a longer lasting, higher, tighter, neutralizing antibody response if you have a better structured antigen in your vaccine. And so we're pretty happy about this spike and we'd like to work with partners that I could help us move it forward because we're gonna need coronavirus vaccines for a long time. So a study on the scale would absolutely not have been possible without a, a long and dedicated group of scientists with different expertise. Ralph Barrick and Alex Bacrea did live virus neutralization assays. Goliath Alters looking at FC activity. Sujin Trust is doing mouse modeling. Betty Corbers looking at sequence analysis. Yoshi Kawoka looking at escape. Uh, Joanne Turner, Jordi Trillis, and Luis Martinez, a lot of uh, in vivo modeling. My program manager, Sharon Chindel, convened all of this and is analyzing the data and shipping the samples. Catherine Hasty led all the neutralization for the variants that I've showed you. How Yang Li is coordinating all of the structural biology efforts. Dan Bettiger at Cartera mapped everything into communities and bins. George Schmarr is looking at binding. And Bjorn Peters built our database and all the analysis tools that will last a long time. And I'm happy to answer any questions. That was, that was terrific. Thanks so much. What, what is very cool about your talk is not only the science, but also you essentially gave a playbook of how to do big, collaborative, global, uh, multidisciplinary science uh, among uh, scientists who have egos, and needs and things like that. That that's astounding. It's I know it's like herding cats, but it, it is a beautiful blueprint. And not only that, not only how to get them to work together, but how to um, pool and analyze data uh, and, and come up with an interpretable conclusion. I, I I think that even apart from the science, that that is just a, an amazing take home message for all of us, particularly in fields that are so large, global, and multidisciplinary. Um, I get, maybe what I'll do is I'll pose the first question, um, which kind of uh, come, comes out of some of the stuff that we ourselves have been seeing in, in, in our own group. Um, do you believe, or has your experience indicated that SARS-CoV-2 has ways of entering cells other than via the, via the spike protein through endocytosis, late cell entry, uh, even into cells that do not bear an ACE2 receptor or Kempfers2? And if so, how do you think we can approach those? Or do you believe that maybe uh, some of the antibodies that seem to not neutralize but are protective are, are hitting these downstream ways of, of uh, viral entry? Great question. You know, the best answer is, is our experience with viruses in general. They always have more than one way in. If a receptor is discovered, it's never the only molecule. There's often a cofactor or there's a different receptor or there's a different receptor on a different kind of cell. And that is one of the reasons why in vitro neutralization can be good, but isn't the only thing. 
because you do your neutralization on a monoculture of one cell type, and it's usually cells that behave really well. It's, you know, we use Vero cells because you can get a nice monolayer and you can get good microscopy. But if in a different cell type, they use a different receptor, or in a different cell type, the pH progression is different upon entry, and they come up with some other molecule inside the endosome, it can be harder to find those kinds of molecules that are not in the cell surface. And so it's extremely common for viruses to have or find more than one way in. And sometimes there's a major way in, sometimes there's a minor way in. And what you look at in your laboratory model cell culture is probably different from what's really happening in a real respiratory tract or mucosal entry route. And what happens in your animal model can be very different from what happens in a human. Uh, a key example is some of the strains of the virus more heavily rely on an enzyme tempers 2 to cleave the spike. And antibodies that neutralize by blocking that cleavage event won't register an effect in a cell type for which that enzyme activity is not needed. And so what assay you do will determine whether or not something will appear as a hit, even though it might ultimately be protective of the model. So there's just lots of ways and lots of complexity, and I don't think we've discovered everything that we need to about this virus, and it's going to change as we try to figure out the strains that we've already got. Do you think there's any risk that a very effective vaccine might simply push the evolution of the virus to, to favor alternative routes, or is that not really a concern? I don't think so. You know, a, the beautiful thing about a vaccine is it makes a polyclonal response. There's lots of different kinds of antibodies that work in different ways and hit different spots. And vaccine also elicits innate protection in T-cells, and the T-cells tend to recognize, you know, peptides that don't change. And so I think, if anything, a vaccine would limit the number of cases and limit the number of roles of the dice and opportunities for that virus to go and change and mutate and become something else. Okay. Uh, this questioner is asking, if spike cross-linking seems to enhance protection, would it be possible to re-engineer an, an FAB from a neutralizing antibody into an IgM form to encompass a larger number of spikes? That's a great question, AC. Yeah, and you can make it, you know, in a pentameric IgM form or a hexameric form. And uh, I think that would be a cool experiment. I'm pretty sure someone's doing it. Um, we, I haven't, we haven't had the time to do it ourselves, but I think that's a great thing to do. And uh, let us know if that's something you're interested in doing. We certainly have <laughs> things to work with. All right. Um, an another question Another questioner wants to know, is there a role for, uh, for combination therapies? In other words, cocktails, uh, teaming, for example, the antibodies with other kind of antiviral agents, uh -huh. like replication or, or even endosomal entry. Absolutely. Why not? You can absolutely <laughs> combine an inhibitor of a protease or a, a polymerase with an antibody therapy. Why not? hit it from multiple routes and, and minimize the risk that you're giving a therapy the virus has already escaped or you're going to drive escape. Another questioner wanted to know, um, does anything in the studies that you've done explain some of the disease disparity that is seen in COVID-19 or is that purely socioeconomic and viral, uh, non-autonomous, that kind of thing? Yeah. 
Our study doesn't address that. Our study addresses uh, the activities of an antibody therapy in vitro and in vivo. Disease outcome by patient is more complex and has multiple factors. It may have to do with their prior exposure, which is quite individual. If they had a recent common cold coronavirus, they might have residual T cells or even some cross-reactive antibodies. You know that VR antibody therapy came from a person who survived SARS-CoV-1. They may have a residual cross-reactive response, which is blunted uh, the ability of that viral replication to get going. They may have a different health status. They may have a, an entirely different dose. You know, there's some people that, um, you know, we know that people with underlying conditions fare more poorly, but not everybody knows they have an underlying condition. There's always a day before you figure that out or a month or a year before that. So there's a lot more complexity in human disease and human outcome. And, I mean, that's the interesting thing about human immunology. When you do mouse immunology and use mouse as a model, you can dissect things in a mechanistic way because the mice all might you know, be very similar genetically and they're kept in the clean box where this is the only pathogen they have and they haven't experienced some other pathogen before. But in human immunology, we are quite different genetically. We do not live in clean boxes. Um, we have been infected with lots of different things before it's individual. We're on different medications that could influence um, different immune responses. We um, have different diets. There are different um, metabolomics. There's, there's lots of differences. And so what you need to do is larger studies where you attempt to understand and grapple with the inherent beautiful dirtiness and complexity of human immunology and extract from that on the scale that you can which things correlate with disease or protection from disease and then decide if those are correlative or causative and what you can do about that. It's a very poetic answer. <laughs> um, I, I guess we're getting towards the end. This, this one last question came in and I, I guess it's quite timely. Uh, and, and the questioner was asking you to weigh in on this. There is with, with uh, Omicron now, uh, so prevalent, but yet uh, seemingly so far not as virulent. Uh, the questioner wanted to know, uh, and there's some theories he, uh, that have been thrown out there that maybe there is some evolutionary pressure where the virus becomes, favors its replication and uh, transmissibility, but in order to preserve the host is less severe and therefore is evolving ultimately into what may be uh, the common cold and endemic, not pandemic. And I know that's been a common theory that's now been uh, proffered and wonder the question was wondering what you thought. This is a great topic. Okay, what do viruses want to do? So first of all, viruses are inanimate. They don't want anything, but their replication <laughs> favors things that replicate faster and spread more. So what does that statistical event favor? Okay, Ebola is a terrible virus, uh, and it's terrible because it kills you really quickly in a spectacular way, and it has to be spread through body fluids. And so in, within a course of days, you are too sick to go anywhere, so that limits your spread. You're rapidly, unfortunately, dead, so that limits the spread. You know, it's certainly can spread through funeral services and so on. Um, and it tends to spread through blood and diarrhea, things like that. And you know, we're quite conditioned to want to avoid blood and diarrhea. 
Okay, whereas a respiratory virus, now that's a good virus because it's really hard to avoid breathing. And it's really hard to avoid breathing the air shared by other people or air shared by animal hosts. And so something that can rapidly go back and forth between humans and the animals and insects with which we live, or from one human to another, or even better, a virus where you don't know you have it. So you're still um, getting on the bus and handling the doorknobs and kissing your kids. That's a terrific virus. And so a successful virus is something that keeps its host alive long enough so it goes on and spreads it everywhere else. And you think about the coronaviruses that we have all just lived with, the common cold coronaviruses. You know, they emerged 800, 1200 years ago. You know, one spilled over from cows. We don't know what the severity was when they spilled over. You know, it's an annoyance and a cold now. We don't know what it was then. And of course, it's really different then because life expectancy was a lot shorter then. If everybody was mostly under the age of 50, the more vulnerable people might not have been there. Certainly people didn't fly around in airplanes. And so there could have been a slower progression of time by which people would be infected and develop some immunity and it would spread from one village to another more slowly. Now it goes from one hemisphere to another within 24 hours. And by the time you figured out a new variant there, it's already in 12 countries. So we don't know what these were like when they first emerged, but you can predict that a more successful virus will not kill its host and not keep its host home. And you can hope that this will evolve to be an annoyance instead of a catastrophe. We might have been really lucky with Omicron that we have high and rapid transmissibility coupled with lower lethality. We might just have been lucky. Um, the random chance of evolutionary events could have also caused a more transmissible virus with greater lethality. Great answer. And uh, a great way to, to end this uh to end the session. One last question came in, but it's not a question. It's just saying an amazing and interesting presentation, an excellent session. <laughs> so with that compliment, thanks for kicking off uh, the 10th year of the Sanford Consortium and the 19th year of the Southern California Stem Cell Consortium. Bye-bye all. Get vaccinated. <laughs>